Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. So way before 10% Happier, the book or the podcast even existed, uh, there was a great podcast that I used to listen to and still listen to occasionally called uh, Buddhist Geeks. And it doesn't actually exist anymore, although you can find it in your podcast feeds. It, it, they're not doing it anymore. But is this great show where they brought on all of these deep end of the pool Buddhist teachers and asked them all these crazy questions. And it was really where I started to learn a lot about um, going past my interest in, in straight up secular meditation and getting a lot more interested in, in uh, um, I guess, issues around enlightenment, uh, to use a loaded term. And uh, the host of that show was a guy named Vince Horn, um, young guy, and uh, he's moved on to some really interesting things, but learned a lot of uh, interesting stuff along the way while hosting Buddhist Geeks. So, uh, and also his his experience on the cushion is super super compelling, which you'll hear all about in this interview right now with Vince from ABC. This is the Ten Percent Happier podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Good to uh, see you. Yeah, good to see you, man. Yeah. That's really it's fun. I, I've spent countless hours with your voice in my head uh, oh. listening to Buddhist Geeks. So, And you must hear people tell you that all the time. Well, my podcast is pretty new, so... Um, it's more your face and your, yeah, that yeah. you see on the, yeah. the TV. But sometimes people do recognize my voice. Um, yeah. Anyway, we're here to talk about you. I, I always start with the same question, which is how did you come to meditation? Um, the first exposure I had to formal meditation was from a meditation class I took with my aunt who was teaching it. And I was 13 at the time. Wow. It's pretty young. Yeah. I came by honestly because my family was kind of weird and into some strange stuff. Where did you grow up? I grew up in North Carolina in Western North Carolina near Asheville. And so what kind of meditation was she teaching? It was... For lack of a better term, it was kind of a, an eclectic mix of sort of new age inspired stuff like imagining going on journeys, a lot of things that had to do with grounding attention downward into the earth, um, which I've learned later was are pretty common practices among different traditions. So were you like, this is crap or you, were you into it? I was, I was pretty into it. I, mean, I, I was curious what my aunt was doing and I found it fascinating and so i went with it and yeah, for and a while <laughs> for what okay so you what, at some point you rebelled or dropped it I, at some point i dropped it um and strangely looking back now i i have a better understanding of why but um i had some interesting experiences and kind of a, a certain kind of awakening to something that was different than i'd ever experienced before i didn't quite know how to make sense of it especially with like a 13 year old conception of the world and at, at some point I, I dropped it, but I always felt as I was going through high school that I should go back to that at some point. Like there's something important there. And then did when I was 19 um, in college, I, I kind of hooked up with some people that were exploring similar stuff. And I ended up dropping out of college to meditate full time at that point. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard about people dropping out to like follow the Grateful Dead or join a cult, but you just were really into meditation. Yeah, I was I was really on a on a trip, you know. I I had these experiences that blew me away and made me think there was a whole other aspect to reality that the conventional reality wasn't talking about. And as a result, conventional reality like going to school, getting my degree, you know, being able to earn a good living, like all of those things suddenly felt very flat and very meaningless to me. What kind of meditation were you doing there having all these crazy experiences? I mean, I feel like my work-a-day meditation does not – I, I mean, I think it's incredibly useful, but it doesn't blow my mind in that way. Yeah. So I, I was – actually, the, some of the experiences I was having, there were some of them were connected to meditation and some weren't. I mean, I was doing – at 19 in school, I got connected with this group that was doing a kind of large group awareness training. You know, it comes out of the – 70s human potential movement where you go in these big groups and you do all these crazy experiential exercises some of them are very meditative and it's very intense you're not sleeping a lot it's over like a weekend it's like these encounter groups I'm sure you've heard of these things no, not really okay I mean, well it's a, it's a whole weird kind of subculture and it's kind of a mix of personal development 
multi-level marketing and spiritual <laughs> training, like all kind of mixed into this very strange environment. Um, and I, I, I would never recommend anyone do this stuff actually in retrospect, but it, it kicked off or like recatalyzed that sort of investigation process for me. And as a result, I started having a lot of, again, a lot of kind of quote unquote spiritual experiences, like my sense of self would dissolve for periods of time, like the sense of who I am as a localized thing would sort of break open. I'd feel a sense of being able to kind of fathom like the suffering of human experience at a really universal level. Like suddenly I feel like I could identify, you know, how all humans throughout time have suffered in wars and, you know, I'd, I'd be reflecting on these things and suddenly my heart would just be cracking open. I'd be bawling and all of a sudden, you know, deep sense of compassion would arise that had nothing to do with me, like Vince and my life experience. It was kind of like touching into the collective experience of being human. Do, do you think you're just a natural meditator? Because these things you're describing are basically the way the Buddhists and many mystical traditions describe the, the, the point of practice, which is to, to, to see that the self that you're carrying around with you is an illusion. Yes. Um, and also the, to, to, to love thy neighbor as thyself, uh, as, uh, another person, not the Buddha said it. Um, and here you are 19 year old kid in these strange quote unquote encounter sessions. You're having these realizations and not everyone else was. No, well, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is I don't, th I'm not having those realizations. Uh, I mean, sometimes intellectually and maybe taste of them in my, daily meditation practice or on retreat or something like sure. that. And I suspect many of the listeners aren't just kind of cracking open in the way you're describing. So you think you're a natural or what, what was going on? I don't tend to think that I'm <laughs> and I'm natural. No. Um, I don't know. I don't know what was going on. That was just my experience. And it, it seemed like the most important thing. So I, um, I felt like I needed to, to really dedicate as much energy time as I could to it. Fair enough. So you're 19, you start meditating full time. What does, what form does that take? Well, um, it took a Buddhist form pretty early on, although it hadn't taken that form up to that point. Um, but I met a bunch of friends at NC state where I was going to school that were going off to do these, um, Vipassana retreats. Um, some of them are going to do these 10 day retreats, um, in what's called the Goenka tradition. Um, that are pretty hardcore. And then I had other friends going up to um, Barrie, Massachusetts to do retreats at the center called the Insight Meditation Society. So just for the people who are listening to this for the first time, Vipassana is an ancient Indian Thank word you. for insight meditation. Um, and it's, it's the kind of Buddhist meditation. You often starts with just noticing the f sensations of your breath coming in and going out. And then when you get lost, you start again. And over time, it's supposed to direct you toward a clear seeing of the impermanence of everything that arises and passes in your in your uh, stream of consciousness, and that should lead you to ultimately to the point of it, which is to see that there's nobody there directing, governing all of this experience, and that is supposed to free you from all of the negative emotions like greed, hatred, and delusion, and their many variants. Am I stating that correctly? I think that's a pretty common model. Uh, I had a slightly different one. Um, I wasn't trying to get rid of greed, hatred, or delusion. I was trying to get enlightened. And, Wasn't that the same thing? Well, there's well, so I, I learned as I got more into this world, you know, like any world, there's different perspectives on what what we're doing. <laughs> well, I like to say that as soon as you start talking about enlightenment, yeah. you're in an argument. That's right, because everyone's got their ideas about what it is. Isn't and that they, ironic? They usually conflict. Um, at one point I thought so. <laughs> I spent too much time hearing the arguments and having them to think it's ironic anymore. <laughs> so, so, okay. So one conception, the traditional conception in the Vipassana, and if you go to a Vipassana retreat yeah. at the Insight Meditation Society that you referenced, or a, I don't know what they tell you at a Goenka retreat, SN Goenka, just again, for those who aren't, aren't steeped in this stuff, SN Goenka was a Indian businessman who studied meditation in Burma. Yep. And uh, then taught a very secular form of, of what is really basically Buddhist meditation. I don't know if he talked about enlightenment or how he did, but mm. traditionally, in the in, if you go to IMS, um, they talk about meditation 
the way it was described in the sort of first, in the early, you know, Buddhist scriptures as the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion, which basically means you're no longer, you know, just striving for things that you want and running from things you don't want and are no longer suffering confusion about the basic nature of reality. Yes, yes. And what I found unhelpful about that way of looking at what I was doing is that I couldn't find anyone who had done that, who had <laughs> done that or who claimed that they, that it could be done from their personal experience. And so it seemed like a myth to me just on the surface of it. Um, but I did find a young uh, teacher named Daniel Ingram. I found a, uh, an ebook that was floating around and I actually met one of his ex roommates, college roommates while I was at NC state and he had a different conception, which is enlightenment isn't necessarily about uprooting all these things. Um, it is about totally shifting your sense of identity and the experience of the, of a reference point, like of who you think you are and that it was possible to have a full experience of, of that changing and even dissolving totally. Why would you want that? Well, at the time, I knew there was something, you know, that was, I'd had these experiences that pointed me in the direction of it not being about me, um, about, that the most profound experiences were the ones where I disappeared, you know, the sense of Vince as a local agent. So, but, but again, I, a lot of, why, I think why I was that important? Yeah, why is that important? Why is that desirable? And isn't it super destabilizing? It, it, it can be, yeah. It's also really beautiful, um, at least it, it it was it wasn't it wasn't this experience because it's like the times where I'm worrying about me and where I was always referencing the Vince <laughs> Vince's problems and I'm, I still do this it's not like it's gone but you know it's just a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen to me there's a lot of it's like the world really shrinks down to this little tiny sphere of concerns and preferences um, and I I think sometimes it's like we don't realize how small our world gets when we're all, when we're totally focused on ourselves. And these experiences kind of brought me out of that world and, and revealed another, another world. Um, that's not separate from, from my experience, but it's, it was very different way of experiencing. And that, you know, it felt so much more vast. It, it didn't feel like free totally in the sense that there wasn't suffering, like the suffering that I experienced when, when I, got out of the way was actually like bigger than my own suffering. Mm. And so it was actually really painful, but there was something else that was bigger that could hold right. that or respond to Maybe it. Maybe more painful, but less personal. Yeah. Less personal. Yeah. You know, I mean, the idea of transcending the self to the uninitiated sounds sort of, um, I don't know, weird or uh, it's hard for me sometimes for people, including myself to grasp why it'd be important. But if you think about it, all of the, peak experiences in the human repertoire are often described as like, uh, or, you know, in Game of Thrones when the, the guy kills the White Walker and they and he describes it as like he wasn't there. It was just the sword doing the killing or uh, when people talk about, you know, being in the zone, making, you know, some incredible play in sports. It's, you know, it's it's as if the, they're being played. Um, same thing with music. Same thing with art. Where or what's that expression? You know, I can't remember who said it, but great artist. When you walk into the studio, all of your critics come with you, then they leave, and then you leave. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I, I think probably mangling that quote. But anyway, I think on some level we understand that when we get out of our own way, when you put it that way, as opposed to transcending the self and all the yes. traditional mystical. Uh, formulations of it, then I think people can understand. And the way you said it, that we're sort of trapped in our own little prison of self-concern, and when we can break out of that, it feels marvelous. Yeah. Or, or profound, um, yeah, profound and painful, but in a way that, again, it's like it's painful, but it, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm speaking from intellectual understanding, sadly. But the pain that one can feel, as I understand it, from breaking out of the aforementioned prison it doesn't sting in the same sort of way because it's not referencing back to some tiny little Vince behind your eyes. Yeah. There's something, there's something bigger for lack of a better terms. So you mentioned Daniel Ingram. Yeah. Daniel Ingram, full disclosure, a friend of mine. I love the guy. 
probably the single most controversial human being in all of Buddhism, um, who, or at least modern Buddhism. Um, he's an ER doctor from Alabama um, who created a sensation in the Buddhist world by writing a book in which he claimed to be an arhant. He actually signed it by the arhant Daniel Ingram. Arhant in the traditional Buddhist lingo is considered somebody who's a fully enlightened being. Now, in Daniel's defense, he actually kind of redefines arhant a little bit, so he doesn't consider himself fully enlightened. But nonetheless, basically a dude who's saying he's gone a a long way toward enlightenment. Um, And he wrote a book about how to do it, kind of a cookbook as he describes it. And this thing was like an e-book from an Alabama-based ER doctor that just went crazy in Buddhist circles. And a lot of my friends who are senior teachers did not like this at all because declaring your meditative attainments is considered to be... Arrogant at the least. Yes, yes. Anyway, so... Why did you like Daniel? What's your view on him now? I, and I guess the caveat should be that both of us are friends with the guy, so um, I don't know that anybody's going to expect some sort of super objective analysis of him. But I'll say that that's exactly the approach I wanted and needed at that time. You know, I'm 19, young, ambitious dude who's having these weird experiences and then goes, how do I like take this further? And it is mostly dudes in Daniel's orbit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, he's a very masculine human being. I mean, he's very directed and very goal focused and he's got a lot of qualities that, you know, are often associated with like masculinity in some, you know, in some form. And I, I, I connected with that. I appreciated that. Um, I liked that he was talking directly and clearly and plainly about something that wasn't so esoteric or unachievable. And that, that made it feel like this ener- like all this energy and time that I'm going to put into this thing, which I'm already doing, is going to be um, worthwhile. It's not going to be. I'm just going to be wasting it, chasing some delusional myth. Yeah, I mean, he, he his argument that's really provocative. He had a big impact on me too. Uh, he really shook me up when I when I first read his book. Because what he's saying is, look, enlightenment's on offer, but you're not going to hear that from the teachers. Or, or they'll mention it in passing almost in a jokey way, but they won't really tell you how to do it. But there's a map out there. Um, there's a, 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 a sort of a, a set of things, you can, practices you can do and, and goalposts for you to keep your uh, – uh, or mile markers for you to keep your eye out for or things that you will experience in your practice that will tell you if you're heading in the right direction – and here's what it is. It's super explicit. Go for it. And I was like, really? Plus, also, I'm a journalist, so I was just fascinated the fact, by the fact that there was a controversy in Buddhism. I just didn't – this was <laughs> before I realized that there are a million controversies in Buddhism. But th- yes. th- that there's a real controversy in modern Buddhism just struck me as super interesting. So I made it my business to become friends with him. Nice. Um, anyway, so you you really dove into the Daniel Ingram model. Yeah. Around 2002, I found his cookbook and – the IMS retreats that I heard about from my friends seemed like a little friendlier than the Goenka ones. I, I, I decided to go that route and I went on retreat and then just started going on retreat after retreat after retreat and practicing, you know, all, all of the time while I waited tables. Um, so I'd just save up money, go on retreats, come back, meditate, serve beer and, um, and really tried to work my way through those, those maps, like tried to kind of hit the hit the mileposts and and my my real goal at that time was I wanted to experience the first quote quote unquote stage of enlightenment and that's sort of a culminating point in the on, on these maps where you have your first experience of um what in the Buddhist tradition is called nirvana it's a first experience of of something which is unconditioned some experience that's not an experience at all and it's it's supposed to change you in some fundamental way and that's what I thought I was after. So I, I kind of went for that. All right. Step back for a second. What are these maps? Why did you believe that they were true? Um, and and what, what what where do they lead you? So I believe they were true because the first part of the map seemed to line up with my experience. I, you know, I said I'd had been having these crazy experiences. And when I looked at the map, and I looked at the descriptions that Daniel wrote out. I was like, oh, I recognize some of these things. What is the ma- – it's not actually like a map that shows you how to find a tr- 
treasure, hidden treasure. It's it's not a, 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 no. a geographic map. It's a description of states that yeah. lead toward nirvana. It's a, it's a phenomenological map. It's a map of of interior experience that happens as you practice these particular forms of meditation. And in Daniel's case, they were very detailed maps. You know, but he was taking them from another source. He was um, he was really inspired by, and they they originally come out of. This is getting a little Buddhist geeky. Go for it. Um, but this is know, the right place to do that. You're in a safe spot. Okay, I feel safe. <laughs> um, you know, they 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 go all the way back to the original, you know, texts that talk about the Buddhist time, and he would talk about these stages of enlightenment, and he would talk about stages of concentration. Like there were already maps even in the in the earliest written histories, but then several hundred years later in Sri Lanka, this other monk comes along. His name is escaping me at the Budagosa? moment. Budagosa, thank you. And he writes basically like a commentary on all these original texts. He, he basically wants to flesh it out and give people essentially a cookbook for how to walk the Buddhist path and in particular at that time how to be a Buddhist monk. And in that cookbook, which is basically divided into three sections, three training sections, you have the training on morality, the training on concentration, and training on insight – he basically lays out in the training on insight this map called the progress of insight. And he gives a very interesting description of what happens as you practice this insight meditation technique or what, you know, is supposed to happen. Um, and so Daniel is inspired by that. Um, but also in Burma in the 1900s, um, some other monks came along, took this stuff and had their own commentary on it. They've created their own practices. Um, a fellow named Mahasi Sayadaw, Sayadaw Upandita, these guys in Burma, um, basically took the cookbook and made their own you know, approach around the cookbook. Like, this is how you move through these stages. They had their own kind of reinterpretation of it. And Daniel was had practiced in that tradition. And so was basically taking what was pretty much a traditional Burmese approach to meditation in that in that world wasn't anything new actually and it wasn't anything that the folks that were practicing at IMS the, the people that we've mentioned that they weren't they weren't aware of and hadn't been exposed to so it's strange to me in one way that it was a controversy <laughs> because he was just he was studying with the same teachers yes yeah, he called himself an arhat yeah and then that that was that was that's that's the part that yeah that's the part that that's the violation of the omerta that you find in, in Buddhist circles about yes. talking about your attainment. Yes, and, and you know what I find interesting about how he justifies that is that if you go back to the Buddha himself and you look at the name Buddha, Buddha means the awakened one. And so the Buddha basically, by saying he was a Buddha after he had his, his own enlightenment experience, was saying, I'm awake. Yeah, but he's the Buddha. Right, but he's the Buddha. Right, so it's okay if the dude who we can't talk to anymore, you know, he he did it, but like it's not okay if anyone around us has done it. So there's something about that that just it just struck me as being weird, and it sets up these weird power dynamics. And I appreciated that Daniel had the gumption to say that he had done something important that was related to the Buddha. And did you believe that he had done it? Um, I I always. You know, I always tried to maintain a kind of skeptical attitude toward anyone's claims, knowing that everyone, you know, can delude themselves into thinking they're special. <laughs> um, but I, the more conversations I had with him and with Kenneth, and the oh, more Kenneth my, that was Kenneth his Volk, roommate that you mentioned before, yeah, and Kenneth Kenneth helped turn him on to um, to meditation. Another, he's all Kenneth Folk is also a meditation teacher now of some prominence. So. Yeah, and so. The more I hung out with these guys and talked to them and the more my practice developed, the more retreats I went on, the more I got to understand my own experience better, um, the more I thought it was at least that first stage of enlightenment seemed totally feasible and possible and that they had experienced it. So just to talk a little bit about the map, and, and you I didn't just, expect to talk about these things. You didn't? No. All right, well, all right, good. I'm glad I'm surprising you. Um, we can talk about whatever you want. Uh, you can shut this, me up at any time. Fine. Um the the map, if I understand it, you can correct me if where I'm where I'm wrong because I will go. I will. I I know just enough to be dangerous. But as I understand this map, and there are 
here's where things get controversial, even more controversial. There are many maps. Yes. Like, so the Tibetans and the Zen folks don't necessarily agree with this map that we are discussing now, which is no. awesome. I love I love all of this. Um, I just think it's incredible. And I don't agree with it anymore. Oh, you don't? I've well, got my own map. Okay, so. all right. Well, let's get to that. I'm excited. <laughs> I want to hear about that. Okay, so, so this map has like four... Uh, stages. The first is that leads up to this first big Nirvana experience. It's called Stream Entry, which you yeah. just said you were gunning for. Yes. Then there's one more. There's another one, which is uh, um, what's called uh, Once Returner. And then there's a third. Each time you hit Nirvana, they they you 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 graduate to the next level. The second one is Once Returner. The third is a Non-Returner, whatever that means. And then the fourth is Arhant, which is a fully enlightened being, although. Daniel redefines Arhant in ways that I actually don't, I can't claim to understand. Um, it's all very Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons to me, um, but uh, you know, totally fascinating. And I just am totally curious about the uh, uh, intrigued by the notion that for millennia, people have been saying if you do certain practices in certain ways at certain dosages certain effects will happen reliably and predictably, and they describe it in minute detail. Hey, you, you will have a, a stage of the uh, of the practice where you start to notice X, uh, maybe uh, the, the difference between um, mind and body, yes. right? You'll notice that some things are happening in your mind and some things are happening in your body and the two are related, and that's just, that's an early insight that one can get. And then it gets more complex from there. And then there's a stage of the path that involves fear and misery. And it's where you start to see the self dissolving, which is a whole destabilizing period of the practice and sometimes referred to as the dark night. And then you get into a phase of equanimity and then you have a bolt of lightning and nirvana hits, whatever that means. And so anyway, you, uh, just to get back to you for a second, you were gunning for that first experience of nirvana. Yes. Um, did it happen, and what was that like if it did happen? Um, I think it did, um, and it was disappointing, actually. Nirvana is disappointing. <laughs> I was disappointed after recognizing that I'd probably had the the experience that was described. And I think I was disappointed in part because I was so obsessed with this goal, and I'd put invested so much into it. And then when it happened, I was, you know, I was grateful and happy and it did feel like something very important for a while. But then I was like, that was it. Like that was, it was, it was kind of anticlimactic. What were you hoping for? All your problems to be solved? I, at some level I was. At some level. I mean, you were a kid in your defense. Yeah, I, I was and um, still in some ways am. <laughs> and definitely. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, being a young person, I had all of these ideals, many of them unexamined, and I attached them to this notion of enlightenment, even though what I was reading from Daniel is, you, you know, th it isn't going to actually give you all this. I was hearing the message <laughs> that you wanted to that hear. I wasn't going to be perfected. Yeah, yeah. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. 
Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Um, Did you have some sort of primordial childhood pain you were trying to over, uh, overcome or something like that? I mean, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's I'm sure that's part of it. You know, the history of of pain, you know, compels one to try to find relief and release. But I think there was something, you know, going way back, like at, to at least 13, where I knew there was some I knew there was something important about this reality that I, you know, that mo- most everyone wasn't seeing. And it felt a foundational assumption was happening at a, at a totally collective level that like all of this and the stories we're telling about it are, are totally true and real, you know, that we are these individuals going around doing this important stuff and that, you know, that that story and that that kind of world is you have to operate within it as if that all those assumptions are fundamentally true. And I, I knew at some level that it wasn't true. Um, from my own experience. And so I really wanted to figure out what was, what was true. You know, that's how I framed it. Um, and so this experience that I ended up having, it was, um, important and it was interesting, but it didn't deliver on all of the high hopes that I had, you know. But, but uh, just again, uh, just get. Let's just get back to the experience itself, because people, the, again, the word Nirvana. I mean, obviously there was a, a grunge band and whatever named after the experience. But I, one picture is the angels singing, the birds, you know, coming yes. down and delivering you uh, candies and uh, whatever. What what is it actually like? Well, you know, I think what people when they think about enlightenment they usually think about actually a phase of practice leading up to it instead of the the experience itself so there's a phase of practice leading up to enlightenment and this is described in various maps where one has a breakthrough of some sort you know there's there's kind of a peak experience the sense of self can be dissolved or can be witnessed from a very different vantage point um there tends to in that experience of of the breakthrough be a sense of vast, spacious openness or stillness or primordial, you know, kind of um, space. And everything is seen to be arising and passing inside of that, you know, inside of this primordial awareness that can't be implicated in any of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that experience is very profound and kind of mind-blowing. But the problem with it is that it's still, there's a separation between the sense of someone, some awareness of what's arising and passing and the experience and the objects of awareness. Right. So you might think you're what is knowing that everything, yes, what is knowing you might think you are the knower of everything that is arising and passing. In fact, it's even more complicated than that. There is no knower. That's right. And um, there's a Zen master named Katagiri Roshi that said, said it really well. He said, the witness is the last stand of the ego. Uh, it's like we learn how to witness our experience in meditation and mindfulness practices. That's what it's aiming at. It's like first you, you, you develop this sort of observer standpoint, this witness standpoint. And at some point you get really good at witnessing. Like if all you do is practice witnessing, at some point you start to just be able to rest in that, that position. And then at some point you see everything is coming and going. You know, it's like nothing is standing still at all. Um, but the, the the problem is that witnessing perspective where you can have that vantage point isn't itself stable. It isn't somewhere that one can hang out um, forever. Like if, if the witness starts to turn back on itself, you know, and see like, wait, what is this feeling of being a witness or observer? What is that actually made of? Um, then the witness or the, the knower itself begins to dissolve and shake. And then that that's where it can get scary for people because, and it, it was for me um, because you know, we tend to think if we're anything, at least we're aware, at least we're like, at least we're, we're the ones that are knowing this, this, this experience. And when that shakes, it's like, whoa, who am I? Like, who am I really? If I, if (laughs) nothing is stable here, (laughs) including the sense of knowing this. And so when people have a breakthrough, it tends to be followed pretty reliably. I've seen over the years by uh, a breakdown, 
after Nirvana or after? No, this is leading up yeah. to Nirvana. So this is the fear and misery stage that I was recommending. Yeah, the dark is, night. I I think of it as the, the the disillusionment phase. You know, where you you thought you had this great thing, mm-hmm. and then it starts to slip out of your fingers, and you go. I lost that. Well, isn't the the pattern that that is often described in in these maps is that you have a peak experience, sometimes known as the arising and passing away, or Daniel calls it the A and P, which is there was a supermarket in Boston when I was growing up called A and P, uh, and uh, that is where you're really seeing how rapidly things arise and pass in the mind, and that's very, very thrilling, quickly. right? And then the fear comes when you see that there's there's nobody. You think you are noticing all of this stuff, but then you realize that there's no you noticing all this stuff, which is incredibly scary for some people. It's often been referred to as the rolling up the mats period of practice. And then, according to the map, you enter into this period of equanimity where you're okay. Actually, this disillusionment becomes disillusionment in a positive way, like the illusion, the enchantment of the world is, is dissolved and you're actually cool with all of it. Uh, or it's again that my teacher Joseph Goldstein uses the analogy of it's like jumping out of a plane, and it's thrilling for a minute. That would be the A and P, and then it's scary because you realize you don't have a parachute, and then and so that's terrifying. And then you realize there's no ground to hit, yeah. and that's the equanimity. And somewhere in equanimity, Nirvana can strike. Yeah. So you know, I was going on a lot of retreats and going through these phases and getting to know them and, and, and checking in with teachers who, who knew them themselves. And they were sort of helping me kind of, they were helping me map my experience in a way. Um, and the disillusionment phase is the hardest phase for most people because it feels like you're going backwards or that you've lost your ability to meditate. Even it's like, I can't even stay focused anymore Mm. because the moment I try to pay attention to my breath or, you know, even the changing experiences that were previously really easy to notice. It's like the moment I try to do that, it's already gone, you know, and, and the sense of who's watching it is also gone. And so there's just constantly like, it's kind of very murky and just, it's kind of disorienting and you feel like shit and you know, really wishing it was some other way than that. And so, you know, for, for me, it took a few years of really kind of being in that territory and, not knowing how to move forward because there's not the way forward is not by pushing anymore. And I had, you know, pushed so hard to get to this point. Well, a classic hindrance. Yeah. It it becomes a problem. Yes. I mean, wanting too much. Yeah. It becomes, it becomes a problem when the, when all of the sensations that make up the wanting it to be different, aren't themselves noticed and, and can't be allowed to occur by themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is the critic. One of the other criticisms of Daniel, and we'll let Daniel come on whenever he wants and defend himself. But one of the criticisms, and he does have good defenses here, is that by being so explicit about the map, he sets up a lot of striving. That's right. This is why senior teachers in the Western tradition have avoided being overly explicit about the map because they're worried that Type A Americans will just become obsessive about hitting all of these goals. Which, of course, that obsession, that striving prevents you from getting anywhere at all. It's a really, it's a big, big, perhaps the biggest of them all, Catch-22. Yeah, and, and there's Catch-22s on all sides. So, you know, if you, if you don't have a map and you don't know what's possible, if you don't know that you could have these breakthrough moments, these big experiences, and then everything could kind of crumble around you after, um, it's hard to also move forward. Yeah. Because you just don't you don't know what the hell's going on, and you're left with your own interpretation, which is usually not you know not that helpful. Yeah. So you were disappointed after Nirvana. You you didn't actually get around to describing what that was like. Yeah. So so I was going to say like o- over the years of 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 kind of working with this phase where it was hard to meditate, and really I was learning I had to just let go and just trust my experience, however it was, even if it was totally. Like there was a lack of concentration. I couldn't focus. I wasn't having any interesting experiences. I was cranky. My body hurt. You know, all of those things, just letting those be, um, learning how to let go of trying to get something other than what was arising in my experience. I got to tell you, just as by way, way of brief interruption, just hearing that for me, yeah. where I am in my practice, is incredibly useful. Yeah, and it, 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 it's, it, it's the key 
you know, to unlocking that phase of practice. And eventually I got wise enough to do that or I, I, I eventually wore myself down enough, you know, to let go and just to really allow things to, to happen on their own. Again, getting myself out of the way. That was the kind of the common thread there. And at a certain point, and this was, this happened while I was on a meditation retreat. So I was meditating for about a month and about three weeks in, I got to this, I got to this point where everything would get really just open, relaxed, easy, nothing special about it, nothing mind blowing. It was just kind of like, but it felt good compared to feeling crappy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so in that sense, it felt like a relief and it would open up into this way. And I'd be like meditating for several hours like this. And then all of a sudden it'd like, I lose it and I'd go back to being crappy again. And I'd feel like, Oh, I got to get out of here and there's something wrong. And I'd be like, okay, just notice that notice the sensations, be with them, label them, you know, uh, anger, aversion, wanting, craving, you know, I'd just be there and it would open back up. And this happened several times where it would open up and then it would close down. Reality's teaching you a lesson. Yeah. It was like getting kind of like, (laughs) you know, kind of getting pushed through the grinder and each time through, it's like I had to let go a little bit more. Uh And at a certain point, it felt like, yeah, in the way I, I kind of gave up. I gave up trying to to make it, to force it to be a certain way to to a pretty large degree, like that I'd certainly a larger degree than I'd ever done before. And in and in that, um, something shifted. And I didn't even actually, I didn't explicitly notice it the first time that it happened. Um, it was only actually later because once once this experience happens, this is part of the maps too you start to actually go through and, and, and have the experience again and again. You start to actually cycle through these phases faster and faster. And each time through, you have this moment of what, what's called fruition in the, in the maps, which basically just means everything kind of bottoms out. Everything disappears for a moment. So it's like they call it a cessation. Experience. A cessation, yeah. It, it's, the lights go out. The lights go out. And it's like, you know, the way I think about it, it's like if you're blinking your eyes, right, it, for just for a moment, the whole visual field actually just vanishes and then reappears. And we don't really think about that because it's just normal part of our experience. But imagine if your whole life, you, your eyes were open all the time. And then for the first time, your eyes blinked and everything just disappeared for a moment and then reappeared. It'd probably be pretty freaking weird. Um <laughs> This is like this experience was like that, except that everything disappeared. Right, multisensorial. Yeah. All sense, all of the physical senses, and any sense of an internal awareness of what was happening. It's like the whole, like all of reality, just kind of blinked. And in the and and the strange thing is, like in the wake of that, there was this incredible sense of relief or, f- or bliss or clarity. Um, and, and and a sense of having seen something important, but but not being able to describe it because there wasn't anyone there to to see it. Right. <laughs> so you can see why I might have been disappointed because I thought I was going to like, you know, I, for some reason I thought I was going to get something. I thought I was going to be able to point to it and be like, I achieved that. Like some sort of trophy. Yeah, like a trophy, or you know, like not explicitly <laughs> thinking this way, but at some level I thought you know I was going to have something. Like it's an attainment. I thought you had, when you attain something, you get it. <laughs> and it was like I attained. I can't even describe what it was. It was Did it um, change your life in any way? It, it didn't. Uh, well, it it changed my meditation practice because it, it became much easier to meditate after that. Um, it felt like it felt much more like I was seeing imper- you know the impermanent way that experience. All I had to do was reflect on things change and it's like everything's changing um and in that sense it felt like i i i suddenly got better at meditation but it didn't change anything else and that was i think also what was kind of weird about it right because your life can be still messed up in all the sorts of ways in which lives are messed up yeah especially you know going on constant retreats right coming back and being like sorry honey i (laughs) You know, sorry, I was gone for six weeks. Are you okay? Yeah, but your partner, your now wife, yeah, she Emily, was doing is a deep uh, medita- she's yeah. a meditation teacher. That's right. But still, I mean, it's not great for the career. It's, yeah. um, 
you know, it, I don't know that Nirvana, maybe experiencing Nirvana can make you less cranky around the house, but maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I mean, to me, it it made me afterwards. I, I felt like I was just constantly moving through these different phases, you know, of consciousness. You know, where sometimes I'd be happy and uplifted and joyful, and then sometimes everything felt like it was dissolving, and that that became like really. You mean you were going through A and P fear and yeah, equanimity again and again, like. It, I, all of the territory that I'd gone through to get to, to get to this point, now it was like it just kept repeating itself over and over again, like kind of recursively cycling through why? these same. I don't know why it happens that they way. They talk about that in the map? They do, yeah. That's, that's, that's considered part of what happens is that once you become familiar with it, it becomes like the baseline of your reality. You're making me not want nirvana. Good. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I don't know. So you don't agree with this map anymore? What do you, you said that earlier? What do you mean? You got you 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 invented your own map because it sounds like you experienced the stuff that's on the map. So why would you not agree with it? Well, you know, here's the tricky part. So I ex- yes, I experienced it, but I also ex- what I experienced was highly conditioned by my by the model and the map that I had. You think you can have experiences because you're expecting said experiences? Or can you delude yourself into thinking you had the experiences because you think they're going to come? Um, I think both of those are true in some cases. But this is a little more like um, it's impossible for me to separate my experience from the models and the, the mental models that I have of it. Like they, those two come together like as a package. So I have these experiences and, and they're valid experiences. But the way they get interpreted as I'm having them are through the lens of these maps. Right, so if you had been practicing in the Zen tradition where they talk about Satori and Kensho, those are their names for the various um, uh, big moments in practice, you might have just described what you had as Satori and Kensho, and you would have put all of the intellectual concepts from Zen onto the raw data of the experience that you had. Yeah, and 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 in that sense, it probably would have been a different experience. Like certainly, my memory of it would have been different, or what I chose to focus on would have been different. Or, you know, I can think there's some overlap and some connection there. It's not to say it's all, it's all, con- it's all dependent on the map or the model, or the kind of practice you're doing. Yeah, and the practice is important too. Um, so expand on what you were saying before about you don't you have a different map now. What does that mean? Well, it it just means I, I think there the map that I was using was very precise and very specific and very helpful, but it didn't it seemed to apply mostly to a particular kind of meditation and in a particular environment, in this case retreat practice. And what I noticed outside of that environment as I got more interested in other forms of meditation and other traditions is one, yeah, like you said, the maps are different. Like they're actually describing slightly different types of experiences and so that immediately broke my fascination with the one map and i started getting interested in all these different maps and interested more in the commonalities you know the convergence points between them as opposed to you know the descriptions of one and then when i started working with students later on as i got further into my own practice sometimes i found that particular map you know the 16 stages of insight helpful the stages of enlightenment and all that. And sometimes I found it was a hindrance for people. Like some people just, they, they were so obsessed with trying to find themselves on the map that it prevented them from actually being able to deepen their, their practice, their concentration, their investigation. And then for some people, I found that their experience actually didn't map onto the map. And yet they were still having important um, insights and they were still deepening in their wisdom, like their fundamental wisdom. And so I started to really see, you know, that the, the, the wisdom and the, the insight that people are going for when they do a contemplative practice, it isn't dependent on the, on the maps or the models or the practices that, get, that, that they're used to get there. There's some point at which it does converge um, across different contemplative traditions. And there's lots of divergences too. But I just started to find, like, I needed to simplify that model and make it a little bit more kind of a little bit more soft and a little less hard and precise so that it could kind of include more of people's experience and still have a map, but but one that's a little bit more kind of relaxed and easy. So what are you doing these days? Because Buddhist Geeks, which was your podcast, really one of the early podcasts in 
just in the world of podcasts. And uh, just in, I recommend everybody go check it out because it's, I don't think it's, you're doing it anymore, but it's, there's a huge body of, of recordings there with basically every important Buddhist practitioner, teacher, and thinker, and writer out there, uh, and, and, and non-Buddhist, just contemplative uh, in the in the whole field of uh, contemplative endeavor, tech tech folks, and and that's how I got turned on to you is just listening to that podcast. I mean, I've listened to dozens and dozens and dozens of them. But you, as, as far as I know, you kind of wound that down and have a new adventure. Can you t- tell me about both developments? Yeah. So I did Buddhist Geeks for about ten years, and starting in two thousand seven, two thousand six. Actually, it's funny because the experience that I described of this nirvana experience um, happened several months before I started Buddhist Geeks. So I started it from both a place of feeling like I started to understand what I was doing a little bit, but also certainly not mature, you know, certainly needed more time and, and practice time to really start to like, for it to start to affect my life in a real way. Yeah, because they often say that, you know, nirvana is a big moment, but actually there's a, it's integrating the understanding of yes. your actual life is a big part of the process. Yes. And, and, and not just having some experience that happens, but starting to see that that experience actually, that non-experience actually permeates everything. Um, you know, seeing it in real time, as Daniel said, as Daniel put it to me, um, was, you know, that was, I had to go through that process as well. And so uh, while I was doing Buddhist geeks and talking to all these people, I was going through my own journey, of course. And part of that journey was deepening in my Buddhist practice. And then part of it was starting to explore outside of Buddhism and and really like, where are the touch points between Buddhism and technology and for younger millennials? um, You know, what, what, what is Buddhism? Why is it useful? Is it useful? Um, You know, what, what does Buddhism have to offer the modern world and what does the modern world, what kind of light does it shine back on Buddhism? Um, And so at first, I, I came at it from the perspective of what does Buddhism have to offer, you know, because I'm like, I'm so on fire with Buddhism. It's gotten me to this place. I think I'm enlightened, <laughs> you know, and so I, I obviously want to, you know, bring that into the world, right? I, but then sort of after years of talking to people, I started to see and as my practice kind of started to mellow out and become more holistic and integrated, I started to also see that there was a lot of problems with Buddhism and there's a lot of uh, ways in which it hadn't incorporated critiques and insights from outside of itself. And so that became more of my interest. And I started talking to more people outside of the Buddhist world. And eventually, you know, and this was in the last few years, I started to just kind of lose some amount of interest in Buddhism at all, <laughs> you know, recognizing, oh, like this isn't as big of a part of my life as it used to be. What I'm really more interested in is is meditation, um, and that's what I got into Buddhism for anyway, to begin with, was the meditation stuff. So it's kind of a full circle mm-hmm. experience in a way. And so so now um, that project has kind of gone into dormancy. Um, although you said the archive is there and people can listen to it. I'm picking up where you left off on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and in many ways, actually, that's the way I think of this. That's cool. I mean, and you're talking to, I mean, a huge diversity of, of different people and different doing different things and incorporating mindfulness and meditation yeah into but that, i right? still there are, yeah I, we do we're a little bit more poppy um than than you were but we still talk to a lot of the same people yeah, too so it's people. kind of trying to mix it up but so so you, you you're you you're coming back as you said you're coming you came full circle back to your interest in meditation yeah so what does that mean and what is your current endeavor endeavor around that well you know after starting to teach meditation my wife and i started to teach several years ago and try to help people through some of the same kinds of territory that we went through. So we used the maps we'd learned and, you know, we're talking to people a lot of times on Skype, you know, having one-on-one relationships, really helping try to guide them through the stages in the same way that, you know, our teachers did. As we did that, that's when our, our conceptions changed. Our models started changing. We started to see there were a lot of people that you know, sat outside of these, they had experiences that didn't conform to these things. And so we started to broaden our perspective and how we teach, how we taught. Um, we also started to see that among our generation, among millennials, um, not everyone was interested in learning this big Buddhist system. You know, they, they just wanted to actually learn something that they could apply immediately to their lives um, in the case of meditation. And so we started to let go of our, also of our ideas that it had to look this way. You know, people had to become Buddhist or go on meditate, even go on meditation retreats in order to make progress. 
like all of those things we started to kind of question. And the result of that is that we've moved more and more toward teaching just straight meditation, recognizing that there are different styles of practice, that each of these different traditions teaches different ways of training the mind and heart and body, um, but that there are also convergences. There are places where they converge. Um, and so there are these kind of, um, for us, there are the, at least these five styles of practice that we that we teach. And how can we, if, if, if listeners want to learn from you, how can they find you? And We're teaching these sort of different styles of practice through a project called Meditate.io, Meditate.io. And um, it's, it's really aimed at, you know, how do we, how do we do a kind of legit training in the digital age? How do we train ourselves in a legit way, um, given the 21st century reality that we live in? So that's the other inquiry for us is what, what is enlightenment in the 21st century? What does it mean to um, have these experiences or to train our minds today, you know, in the Internet age? It's because it's such a different world than the the world in which these maps, these original maps, were created, and so it seems like we need to to think about it differently. I think. So, if people want to learn from you, they should go to meditate.io, and also check out the backlog of Buddhist geeks. Yeah, we should say your wife's name, Emily Horn. Emily Horn, who's yeah. your partner in the most holistic sense of that term yeah. and a, a, a very experienced teacher and meditation practitioner herself and you he, if, if you go listen to some of the buddhist geeks podcast you'll hear her quite a bit she's definitely the more enlightened of the two and i don't actually mean that you don't actually mean that i, mean, I do mean that you do actually mean that. Yeah, yeah she she's she was figuring things out well before i was <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it took me a while to realize that. Yeah, it sounds like my marriage. Um, <laughs> like everyone. Uh, yeah, that's probably, probably true. Um, yeah, and I can even see we both, you and I both have two-year-olds. You can just see like the little girls are so much smarter than the little boys. My my kid, I don't know about yours, is just busy <laughs> eating and destroying and not doing anything constructive, like knocking things over. And the girls will actually like make stuff and build stuff. It's really it's something, uh, something to be learned there. Um, all right. This has been great. A huge pleasure. Thank you. Great to see you. You too. So big thanks to Vince for that. And I just want to let everybody know, Vince talked about this a little bit, but he's got this uh, new project called Meditate.io. That's the website, Meditate.io. It's a free course on, as they say, mapping the mindful path. And it's a way, you know, we talked a lot about the progress of insight during the course of this podcast and it's really Vince and his team's way of making this progressive insight more approachable and doable and uh, this new uh, course uh, really talks a lot about something called social noting which is a really interesting technique so I, I encourage you to go check it out uh, and again thanks to Vince and thanks for everybody uh, for listening Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.